as I play this over in my head, um, it's not triumph over suffering, actually. Um, it's actually should be triumph in suffering. Right? Um, not that there's anything wrong with that metaphor of over suffering, but so many times we get motivated or are inspired by the Lord to triumph over our suffering or triumph over our circumstance or whatever, and then when we walk out and we don't feel like that suffering has left us, um, we feel like that triumph didn't work. And I think, um, as we learned last week, there's so much to be learned about triumph um, in our circumstance that it actually has little to do with um, the circumstance and what God is ultimately doing in us and through us. Um, so I just had that thought over there just as it's funny how the Lord brings that to your mind uh, at the last second even though I had asked Katie to share that it's so powerful and even hearing it last night it's so powerful and, and, I, and I feel like before we go any further um, you, you may be here today and, and you're at a spot where you're like oh, it's so powerful and so impacting and, but you maybe feel like what now? What do I do with this way I, the way I feel right now? Um, and I would just say that um, either we're going into a storm, we're in a storm, or a storm just passed. Every single one of us. We're going into it, we're in it, or it just passed. And I just, you know how you can say the phrase, um, that story never gets old? You know how you can say that sometimes? And, and in, in, in reality, you can say that about stories that are happy like or funny. Like, oh, man, that story never gets old. But I can say that about Katie's story and, and Javi's story and Lily's story and their family. I can say that that, that story never gets old. Not because of the, um, not necessarily even because of the joy or what, why it's enjoyable to hear. But that story doesn't get old because I feel like that is what it's all about. That, not, not for the sake of Lily, because man, oh man, she is with Jesus. But for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of true contentment, and trust, and humility, and to suffer well like they have suffered and still suffer Triumph in the suffering is that. Like when I hear a story like that, or I see someone stand up at a funeral and share something similar to that, there's triumph in that suffering. You're like, that is what it is all about. They get it. And so you may be heading into the storm, in the storm, or the storm just passed, and I want to challenge you to remember that. Maybe your storm isn't as extreme or as deep or as painful as what she just shared. But remember that, that perspective. And if they can get through that, then you can get through that. Triumph in the suffering. So maybe you're at this moment right now and, and you're like, all right, well, what do I do with this suffering? How do I conquer this? How do I jump over it? Um, 
I, I don't know what God's plan is for, for your suffering. I don't know his timing. I don't know all of that. But I do know that he has resurrection power. I know that he is sovereign. I know that he can heal. I know that he can do all things. But I also know, too, um, that maybe you need to triumph in the suffering. In it. In the pain. Not that God's like, just take the pain and just suffer with it. He's not all about that. He wants to ultimately resurrect that. He wants to ultimately heal that. Ultimately, and for in light of eternity, deal with that thing. But before we try to step over it, what, what is happening? What is that triumph about? Hopefully this morning it will give a little bit more context to that. If you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, uh, the end of chapter 1, I want to pick up where we left off. Last week, we, um, and, and thank you again, Katie, so much for sharing that. Um, last week, we talked about triumph over circumstance. And we ended with the idea that Paul, <laughs> who is writing from prison, who's been arrested for proclaiming the gospel, He's writing from prison, and he's saying earlier in the chapter, the beginning of chapter 1, and in the middle of chapter 1, he's kind of dissecting, saying, hey, this is good that I'm in, I'm in prison. It's actually making the gospel go further. It's actually advancing the, the most amazing message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going forward. And this is actually what it's doing, too, is it's uniting the church. Now, this is... That's absolutely supernatural if you think about that. Think about that in context of Jamestown, New York, or the United States of America. And I know last week I was kind of ragging on a little bit on the United States and, 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 again, so patriotic. I'm so, like, uh, filled with joy and, and, and appreciation for what our country is and that we get to live here. But in that, it's sometimes hard to read these stories and see, like, how far we have come in the blessing of this nation to where what they've experienced and what they did experience during that time when the, the gospel was flying around the world. It was advancing through the blood of those martyrs. It was advancing through Paul, the apostle, leading the charge from a prison cell. Like his tweets came in the form of a letter to a church gathered in this city of Philippi. And it radically changed everything because God chose to use that. Triumph in the circumstance for Paul wasn't, okay, guys, all right, you just keep praying that I get out of here. You keep praying that they'll move me to a better cell, one that's got a mattress and three meals a day, and I can go outside for an hour and a half and play basketball. He didn't say that. In fact, he, he gave the impression that he desired to stay in prison. Why? So that the gospel would advance forward. You see, all of a sudden, as we learned last week, it's not about us. It's not about our circumstance. It's not about our current thing that we're going through. 
There's something bigger going on. And not that God doesn't care about those circumstances. He certainly, certainly does. He cares about every little thing. He cares about our ailments and our sickness. And he cares about our, the details of the day. He cares about all that. He's God. He is everywhere and all-powerful. And he is, he is working all things together for good. But what is that good? Is it our good and our comfort? Or is it his good and his glory? And I think what happens is, Although sometimes those seem different, what ultimately is our good <laughs> is God's good. The good that we want, the good that's fulfilling, the good that advances the gospel, the good that makes us feel fulfilled and loved and welcomed and full of purpose is God's good, not just alone in our good. Um, uh, 2009, no, 2008, uh, I had the privilege to go on a missions trip to the country of Ukraine, and one of, it was so uh, different, uh, but amazing, and one of the highlights of it was they allowed me to, uh, it was a church about this size, and, but there were like 300 more people in the building, um, packed in the, I mean, it was so packed, it was so hot, and, um, I had a translator, and the message that God, made very clearly I need to share was defining the difference between God's good and our good. What we would consider our good. Because our, our good is like, give me a couch, a bag of Doritos, and the game. Right? That may not be God's good for us. But although that's good, it's so trying to define this English word good through a translator in Ukraine and through him telling a room full of people that no one speaks English except for the people that are from the team from the United States, the difference between God's good and our good, it didn't go so well, um, as you can probably imagine. But trying to define that in our life is just as difficult, right? And so I'm not about to label your suffering good. I'm not about, I'm not about to label my suffering as good. But this morning, I want to invite you to float up about 300 feet and look down at the reference point of our life and to see it outside of ourselves. Are you with me? Just in the next 25 minutes. Okay? So, I guess I better. All right. Um, Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, verse 20. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So the context is he's in prison. He's writing these letters to this church that has gathered. Those that have come to Jesus Christ that are celebrating, they're gathering for worship, they're doing life together, they're on mission to not just their home, their church, but their community. The gospel is going forward. Things are happening. The government is trying to shut the mouth 
of all of the people proclaiming this good news. And Paul knows that and sees that and doesn't see his discomfort. He sees the advancement of the gospel as a good thing. And as he's encouraging the church that, like, this is a good thing. And he's saying, with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He's honored in my body, not by me complaining about my circumstance. But he's honored in my body by me giving him glory and seeing the true uh, purpose of his glory and good in my life, regardless of the suffering or the circumstance that I'm in. If I am to live in the flesh, excuse me, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. You're taking notes right, right beside there or flip over in your Bible, either one. Galatians 2.20 is one of, the most, um, one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And sometimes if you just read it straight through, you're kind of like, what, 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 what? I am crucif-, Paul is saying, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Back up. I am crucified with Christ. Means he's saying I'm dead. As Christ died, I died. But yet I, like, I, and that's metaphor, but in reality I'm alive. Like I'm breathing, I may have uh, days left, I may have decades left. I'm, I'm alive. Um, nevertheless I live. But yet not I but it's Christ. It's him, the one that died, and the one I died with, it's him that lives inside of me. In this life, this life, like my 75 or 80 or, or, or 35 years that I have, um, this life that I live in the flesh, like, like breathing, moving, I'm going to live by faith, something I can't see. In who? In what? In Jesus. Because he gave himself for me. Um, did it go well for him on this earth, in the flesh, in the breathing, moving organism, a, a life that he had? No. We're going to get to more of that in a moment. But did it end well? Did he rise again? Yeah. Is he seated as God at the right hand of Father God? Is he reigning forever? Yes. And he's asking, and no, no, he's telling, he's inviting, he's welcoming us to have the same life, the same resurrection. Count me in. So there's this, there's this whole, like, at face value, that, that, like, center point of suffering and prison cell and hardships and, and suffering, there's this, there's this invitation, like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just going to do the Doritos and the couch thing. I don't even like Doritos. I don't know why I said that. Corn chips and the white French or um, sour cream and onion dip. Come on, who's with me? All right. Okay. Side note. Okay, back on track. But looking at it at face value is not good. Not good. Hmm. <laughs> but at that reference point. If it's not me anymore, if it's my body, 
Christ lives in me, if it's actually Christ, if I am Christ, it's, if he's saying, for me to live is Christ, that may sound a, a little bit uh, off or hard to understand grammatically, at least it was, is for me, um, but, but he's saying like, I'm, 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 I'm Christ, not saying like, I am Christ, but he's like, Christ lives in me, like I am living just like Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, I want to be like him, like if that's him living in, in, inside of me, then all of a sudden, the perspective of suffering and God's good and everything else, all of a sudden, that reference point that I see of my life is not, is not um, lost, is not suffering, is not so bad. It's all about our perspective. So go on. Um, Philippians, uh, we're still Philippians chapter 1, verses 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. Then he goes on to express his desire to be with Jesus truly and naturally. And that's why he calls it gain. To win. Skip down to chapter 2. That's where I want to park the rest of the way. Um, actually, Today was supposed to be, um, the focus was, was really triumph in suffering. And, and I think we hit that, but, but I, I, I want to take it even a step further. Um, today, I want to take the rest of our time and, and talk about triumph over self. Come on. Everybody just checked out. They're like, I'm good. Triumph over self. See, here's the thing. If you're going to triumph over your circumstance, you're going to triumph in suffering, the only way that it happens is when you empty of yourself. It's the only way. So if you're here right now and you're like, nope, I can't empty of myself, well, then the rest of what I'm going to say and the rest of what the Word is, is saying in chapter 2 um, is irrelevant. Because the first step is emptying yourself. That you recognize that it's not about you. As Paul just challenged us, that, that he is dead with Christ. It doesn't matter. Not that his life doesn't matter. Not that his, his comings and goings and his goals and his purposes and his dreams and aspirations and his family and his body and his health and his time and his money. Not that those don't matter. But he's setting a priority that God matters first. And when Christ matters first, everything else flows into place. Not perfectly, not prettily. don't think that's a word, but it, not always so pretty. Not always so seamless. But what is he inviting us to is something that's so profound. When we empty of ourself, we get to be Jesus. When we have invited him in. We've been, when we have invited him in to fill the space in our life, to act on our behalf. Um, verse 1. So there is, this is chapter 2, but I don't think Paul necessarily in writing a personal letter to the church was like, I'm going to move on to chapter 2 now. I think he probably just kept writing and so the first word of this chapter is so. He's 
under the context of what everything I just said, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction, or excuse me, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying good things. He's saying, listen, church, like all of these things, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in the love you have, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Like bring it across the finish line. Like put the icing on the cake so that my joy may be full. This is how you do it. You are one. Like I desire, and I'm seeing all these things in the church. And I'm seeing all these things in this church. But Paul, as well as myself in this moment, I'm challenging you, encouraging you to complete our joy as leaders here. Complete our joy by being one. Of the same love. Of the same mind. In one accord. Of the same purpose. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is Christ Jesus, to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he just laid out this high and lofty thing, uh, this high and lofty goal for the church at Philippi, that you would be like Christ, that you would not just be of one mind and of one heart and one accord, but he goes further to say, I want you to be like Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And how you do that is through humility. Like, uh uh-oh. First you asked us to empty ourselves, and now you're going to talk about humility. I don't want to just stand here and like preach at you or, or talk to you. Or, I'm certainly not talking down to you. I'm talking with you. Sometimes the way up is down. And we try to use force and we try to use strength and we try to use um, games to try to advance our purpose or our agenda when God is simply asking us Humble ourselves. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight where God can see. Now where does God see? Everywhere. So everywhere, humble yourself. He will lift you up. He will bring you to the top. So that you can be king? Probably not. But that you can feel, that you can know And that you can truly have victory over that circumstance, over that suffering, over that person, 
over that situation. You humble yourself. He lifts you up. And he's challenging the church to do that. He, he's challenging them to be like Christ, have the mind of Christ. And the way you're going to do that is humility. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I've been uh, preaching, teaching in ministry. This would be 14 years. And um, one of the things I don't think I've ever done is, even though I repeat myself a lot during a message, I never, like, reuse a message. I, never, I don't have, I'm not that organized. Like, I'm not, I don't have, like, this, I have lots of different notebooks, but if I look back now to, like, a message from three years ago, I'm like, what in the world does that even mean? Um, so I have all these booklets, but I never, like, pull out the same sermon. Um, part of the reason is because I saw that a lot, like, and it drives me nuts if I see that. Like, you, it, like they pull it out, and, 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 and it just seems, like, really rehearsed and not, not from the heart. Um, but um, one of the things that always made me nervous uh, uh, in front of people, well, two things. It was a wedding and a funeral, mainly because those were big days. Um, whether it's one or the other, like, there, it really mattered what you said, and if you forgot something, or you messed up, or you got distracted by corn chips and, and, and that dip I was trying to describe, like, it just doesn't go well if you get distracted, so you need to be really organized, and so um, I've been doing a lot of, of weddings uh, of late, actually, the last few years, and, and it's so, it's one of the most enjoyable things, to, like, walk a couple through um, the premarital counseling period, and, and, and just walk them through some of the, the hard conversations, and, and then, like, literally, metaphorically, and literally, like, walk with them down an aisle and out of the church when it's done, of, like, here you go, like, this is an amazing day of the covenant they're making before the Lord, and so um, one little part of the wedding is a message. Now, <laughs> depending on the couple, um, they want to um, either, like, make that a sentence, or uh, make that longer. I remember specifically uh, Megan and TJ um, got married a few years ago. They were like, dude, you, we, we want you to preach a message. So like, we're thinking like 50 minutes or so. I'm like, what? Are you for real? There's no way. I'm not doing that. Like, I can talk, but man, that's crazy. Um, and so we kind of argued through that and, and pared it down quite a bit. But typically, it's a short little message that you challenge the audience with and you challenge um, the couple. Um, in fact, I was standing in this very spot uh, two, three weeks ago, um, marrying a couple and um, giving the message. And uh, a lot, most of the weddings, my wife is there. Um, but we got in the car after the wedding, and um, I think it was right after. No, it was, yeah, it was right after the wedding. And um, she, <laughs> she says, um, babe, you, you should try a different wedding message. <laughs> like, because I, I, I had the same one. That's all I got. Like, it just it works, right? And the message that I have to share at a wedding is about humility. And part of the reason is because I'm, like, preaching to myself, because being married 13, 14 years, how, yeah, uh, <laughs> corn chips, ah, uh, when you're married that long, humility, like, it gets you from everywhere, right? 
and you realize how you, might, you need that more than anybody, and so you're, like, trying to tell these people, they're like, oh, I just love you, and you're like, on this side of it, you're like, dude, bro, it, you, you guys got to have some humility. It changes the game. It just, you're going to be okay if you bring that into play, and it sounds really like, oh, humility. That's cute, but it's legit. I mean, whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're an eighth grader at a local school, humility is life-changing. And we both of them need it. We all need it. Who has it? Jesus. And this is how Paul dissects that. This is how he describes that. He's like, Jesus of all people who had Full humility. The mind of Christ is to be fully humble. Uh, you're talking God with skin came to this earth. He didn't come rolling in with red carpet. He was born in a barn. He was laid with like probably ratty clothes, swaddling clothes, and thrown in a feeding trough. They didn't have a place to birth. The child. And yes, he established a new set of the king is here through the kings that came and all the people that came to worship the king of kings and lord of lords, the Messiah who's finally here. But Jesus didn't necessarily establish, look, everyone, I'm here. Just want to let you know you've been waiting for me for a long time. Bow down now. No, he didn't. He had humility. And what does humility look like for him? It, it was looking at the interests of others. It was not out of rivalry or conceit. Did he speak with passion and at times a righteous anger? Yes. But it wasn't out of rivalry. It was out of truth. It was out of the gospel. It was out of rescue. It was out of his plan for Israel. It was out of his plan for your soul. It was out of his plan for what his father had sent him to do. That is humility because it wasn't about Jesus. For him, if you ask Jesus what's it all about, he would have been like, my dad. That's what it's all about. What does God the Father say it's all about? It's about my son. Oh, man. There's like this, wait, I'm confused. And he's like, yep, we're one. You get it? And then when Jesus, like after he, he lives his life and he, and he dies and he rose from the dead and, and he's, he spends the, the 40 days with his, his people and he's preparing them, he's like, you just wait. You just wait. I am sending my spirit, the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, you, just, you think I've done some cool stuff? You just wait till he comes. He's going to fill you all and empower you all and take this gospel. And he's going to spread it not to just Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the church of Philippi and the church of Thessalonica and the church of everywhere. And even to this very moment in Jamestown, New York, people. Listen, that happened because of the Holy Spirit that was sent. And so the Holy Spirit's like, hey, Jesus, Father God, it's all about you. You take the credit. And the father's like, look, the son, you, psh, psh, psh. it's about the son. And the son's like, no, it's about the father. And there's this amazing trinity that happens. And we're like trying to decide and trying to separate their purpose and their point. And I think we miss the point when we do that, that they are one. And they're acting through and with each other with humility, trying to lift each other up. Jesus 
was in the form of man, but he thought it not something to be grasped, the form of God, but he thought it not a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And on that cross, why is that such a symbol for everything? Is because it's a reminder that Jesus made himself nothing. He took the blame. He took the credit for all of our sin. He could have been like, I'm just here to like pay for the sin. Just so you guys know, I didn't do any of this. I don't deserve this. He even as the Old Testament prophesies, he didn't say a word in regard to that. As a lamb led to the slaughter, he spoke not a word. See, sometimes humility is not saying anything. It was for Jesus. Quickly, I got five minutes. I got to finish this. Five things that we empty ourselves with by. We empty ourselves in, number one, time. Are you available? That's hard to hear. Since so busy, we're in a busy season, we're in a busy life, and there's all the things we have going on and have you have going on. It's so hard to be available. But when we prioritize the things that are important, we're busy with the things that God wants us to be busy with. Time. Number two, money. We empty ourselves of what we think is important financially. And we establish what is important to him and his glory. We empty ourselves. We humble ourselves in time, money. Number three, identity. We empty ourselves of who we think we are and we fill ourselves with who he truly is. Um, going back to the wedding thing, because it, it's, it's good. It's good. The wedding sermon. Right, honey? Um, one of the things I say at the beginning um, is, and if I've married you in, uh, in this room, I apologize that it wasn't just you. It was, it was I've used it. Ah. Uh, when you walk, when the bride walks down the, the aisle, everyone stands. Everyone stands. And I use that as an example of humility. C.S. Lewis says uh, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And so in that moment, like, wedding when, like a wedding when the bride comes down, we all choose to make her the most important person in the room. Or like at birthdays, when we sing to someone that's their birthday, we choose to make them the most important person in the room. It's not about, like, everyone else in the room being horrible. It's not about equality. It's not about that. It's about making that one person of honor in the center of attention. That's humility. And so when we understand that and we grasp that, it changes everything. And that's what Christ did for us, and that's what we are to do in our identity, that Christ himself, even on the cross, and even his 33 years in life, he was so secure, 
He was so secure in his father. He was so secure in the plan. He was so secure in the sacrifice and the prophecies that had been foretold that the God who's not trapped in time, he's not trapped in any uh, uh, thing at all, an infinite God, comes to this earth and he humbles himself under time. And he humbles himself under suffering. And he humbles himself under the pain and the weight of it all. Why? Because his identity was in the Father. Now, last thought. I'm going to skip those last two. The last thought I have. Pastor Cameron last night said that when... Uh, I don't want to mess it up. Will you throw me my phone there? I, when you quote somebody, you should probably get it right. Um, Pastor Cameron said last night, that when our reference point in life is the glory of Jesus and our purpose is spreading the gospel, then we will triumph over all. You should listen to that. It's so good. I'm going to say it one more time. When our reference point in life is the glory of Jesus and our purpose is, spreading, is the spreading of the gospel, then we will triumph over all. All. Here's the thing about humility. Whether it's a person or circumstance, whether it's suffering, no matter what it is, when Christ is our reference point, if he is the center point, then everything in our life is revolving around that. Every circumstance, every triumph, every trial, every hardship, every blessing, every sickness, every difficult relationship, every work-related difficulty, everything, the center point, the reference point is Christ, and Christ in us. See what happens is when it's the reference point, it changes our perspective, it changes everything. Let me, let me, and for analogy's sake, let me say it this way. Say you're, you're, you're in uh, the car, and you're driving down the road, and you happen to have an, uh, a situation like road rage, right? And you're driving the speed, speed limit, and you're, uh, you're completely following the law, which, yeah, I'm sure none of you ever uh, do that, but let's pretend that you did. You're going to speed limit, someone just like runs right up to you, I mean, they get inches from your bumper, and they're just, they're waving high and things like that behind you, you can see them in the mirror, and then they zoom around, and they're so angry with the way that you've been driving that they kind of do a little bit of a swerve, and you go halfway off the road, and there's this point, and if you're like me, like I'm, I, like acting like Christ is, is like I get it, and, and there's times where I act like Christ, but it, it's usually not in my car. Like, that's where I have the issue. And, and here's the thing. Like, in that moment, like, for example, someone way better than me that has a better mind of Christ acts right, and they just swerve off, and they're like, okay, both hands back on the wheel, and we're good. And there's this point of, like, I want to crush that guy. I want to swerve. Like, okay, that was just me. Uh, but then, but then, here's your reference point. There was a cop right there who saw the whole thing. And, and you're like, doo, 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 doo. all of a sudden, that, that police officer has served as a reference point to the very thing that you just went through. My kids fight like crazy right now. Arguing, 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 pushing, crying, fake crying, lots of fake crying. And then this is what we hear. This is what we hear. Dad! Dad! And as soon as you hear that, like, okay, you immediately jump into, like, um, judge mode. You're like, all rise, here we go. Like, you're like, like, you're ready to go because you're like, all right, 
I want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because in that moment, truth begins to be a reference point. <laughs> and we have all these things in our life that become reference points in relationships that are difficult, in circumstances that are difficult, in suffering that is so tragic and so it can bury us. When we see refuge and we see truth and we see all these things, they become a sinner focal reference point for us. Where and now all of a sudden, rescue has come. Refuge has come. I don't care what that person thinks of me because my dad is okay with me. I don't care if they forgive me because Christ has forgiven me. I don't care what they say about me because I know what God says about me. I don't care what they say about my future. I know what God says about my future. I don't care what they say about my past. I know what God says about my past. He has become the perspective or the, uh, the, 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 the focal point, the center point of everything. And when that happens, we automatically and naturally triumph in suffering. We automatically triumph over ourselves because we're empty of ourselves and we're filled with Christ. And when we're filled with Christ, it changes everything in the mind of Christ. The way we think, the way we act, and the relationships that we have change. We got nothing to prove. We got nothing to hide. We got nothing to even say, which is difficult for me. We have nothing. We're so loved. We're so accepted. And even the areas of our life that you know and I know have got to change. We have got to mature. We have got to grow. And even Paul addresses that in his letter. But in this moment, he wants to challenge them that let this mind be in you and among you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who had every right to think he was God and to get everyone out of the way, but he didn't. He made himself nothing. And he became obedient to who? The Father. But watch what happens. The last thought I have, I promise. When Jesus humbles himself, and he makes himself nothing. Listen to what the creator God, almighty God, the sovereign power of the universe says. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? The glory of the Father. In that moment, when Jesus makes himself of nothing, and when God lifts his son up, and when God gives his son life again, what happens in that moment for Jesus is, he recognizes, he realizes that his reference point, the Father, has now exalted him. When he made himself low, God himself rose him and lifted him up. That's life. That's eternity. And that's the life that I'm inviting you to have as well. You can have it, not by earning, not by paying, not by doing nothing, but believing and trusting. Trusting what he did on the cross and what we've walked through. But my last challenge is we stand to pray, is would you trust him enough to humble yourself before him and humble yourself 
to everything around you. Would you stand? Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your love, and for what you think about us and what you've declared for us and the path you've made for us in this life in eternity because of your sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, for that. My prayer over this morning is for myself and for every person in this room that you would have, that you would give us in this moment power to get down, power to humble ourselves, to have your mind, that we would triumph not just in suffering, but we would triumph over ourselves. Thank you.